Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 4.4, Fascism. everyone and welcome back to Musings on History. I'm your host Dana and if they gave out scholarships for irritating people with your opinions then I would probably be a Rhodes Scholar. Some recent developments since last episode I have created a medium blog and email address for the podcast. The email address is musingshistory at photonmail.com that's p-h-o-t-o-n-m-a-i-l.com photonmail. And the Medium site is Musings on History. A link to the Medium site can be found on the Buzzsprout site as well as in the description box on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So please feel free to start relevant discussions. I'm also thinking about starting a Twitter account for the podcast. And even though it's been a minute since the last post, I do still have the newsletter and should be posting new content there soon as well. The newsletter is musingshistory.substack.com, by the way. So last episode, I said that neoliberalism's advocating for a strong state to enforce market principles in every aspect of society tended to lean towards fascism. And in today's episode, I would like to expound upon that statement. Just like neoliberalism cannot be fully understood unless one knows the history of the development of classical liberal economic theory, Fascism as a political and economic concept cannot be fully understood without first understanding the development of nationalism. So fascism is defined by Webster's as a political philosophy, movement, or regime, such as that of the fascisti, that exalts nation and often race above the individual and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, and forcible suppression of opposition. On the political scale, fascism is considered a far-right ideology as opposed to liberalism, Marxism, and anarchism. If you'll recall from episode 3.2 of my Lives of the Three Generals series, Napoleon Bonaparte was the architect of modern French nationalism with the rallying cry of liberté, égalité, and fraternité and the building of French élan, or fighting spirit, as a means of preserving not only the French state, but French culture and history. During the Napoleonic Wars, every French citizen saw it as their duty to fight and do whatever was necessary, both militarily and economically, to preserve the homeland. Outside of France, Napoleon's influence did much to foster a nationalist spirit across Europe. Prior to Napoleon, the Holy Roman, Ottoman, Russian, and Austrian empires ruled over multinational, multi-ethnic lands with very little regard for their cultural differences or distinctions that had existed prior to. After Napoleon, the Holy Roman Emperor w- Empire was dissolved and the 39-state German Confederation came into being. Now, Napoleon didn't create the German Confederation because he wanted to see a unified German state, quite the opposite. Splitting German-speaking Europe between the Austrian Empire, Kingdom of Prussia, and the German Confederation actually weakened Germans as a political entity, which was Napoleon's point. 
It did, however, foster a sense of ethnic, linguistic, and cultural unity amongst the various duchies, margravates, and kingdoms that made up German-speaking Europe. See, in the First Reich, which is another name for the Holy Roman Empire, the emperor was elected and was not always ethnically German. There was also no centralized capital in a traditionally German-speaking area, nor did his court always speak German. In fact, the Austrians, French, and Spanish royal families often fought amongst each other for centuries over the position of Holy Roman Emperor. And indeed, there were Holy Roman Emperors from the houses of Trastamara, Spain, Valois, which is France, and Habsburg, which is Austria. The last Holy Roman Emperor, Francis II, was born in Florence in the Duchy of Tuscany. And while nominally part of the Holy Roman Emperor, Tuscany was obviously Italian-speaking and at that point overwhelmingly Catholic as opposed to the many states that made up the predominantly German-speaking Protestant Holy Roman Empire. By 1800, though, pretty much the entire empire had been reduced to German-speaking lands. But through the creation of the Federation... Napoleon had implanted this idea of a modern German nationalism, and the Prussians and Austrians fought numerous times to lay claim to the Confederation's lands. This dispute ultimately ended with a Prussian victory in 1866, establishing the Berlin-based North German Confederation. And as more kingdoms and duchies continued to join the North German Confederation, this established the Second Reich, or the German Empire, in 1870. Napoleon liked to create sister republics like the German Confederation throughout continental Europe to serve as allies and buffer states. Though these republics were nominally independent, they were dependent upon France for military support and were bound by the guidelines of the continental system, which made France the center of all their trade activities. In modern-day parlance, these sister republics would be considered client states, But for the early 19th century, these sister republics linked together by their shared cultural and linguistic history were a bold and refreshing way to look at European governance. Napoleon followed this model in Italy for a short time in Ireland, which definitely made the British wet their pants, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. Most of the republics in Italy were reabsorbed into larger non-Italian-speaking empires by 1830, but as we all know, one cannot kill an idea, and the idea of a unified Italian-speaking state run by and populated with native Italian speakers continued on until the Kingdom of Italy was established in 1861. This nationalist feeling continued throughout the 19th century, culminating in the Risorgimento of 1870, which saw the entire peninsula become unified under the House of Savoy, hereditary kings of Sardinia. I should note that there are many types of nationalism, but the kind of nationalism that fascism birthed itself from was based on ethnicity, language, and race primarily. While some of these sister republics managed to become full-on nationalist kingdoms in their own right by the beginning of the 20th century, The Austrian, now called Austro-Hungarian, Ottoman, and Russian empires still exercised control over huge chunks of Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East, and these areas were also ripe with nationalist sentiment. Within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Serbs, Croats, Albanians, Poles, Czechs, Romanians, Bohemian Germans, Slovaks, Bosnians, Kosovoans, etc., constantly agitated for equal status with Austrians 
and Hungarians, especially in regards to language. Though the dual monarchy, which it was another term for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, attempted to make modest reforms in the 1880s, the preferred languages were German in Austria and its controlled territories, and Hungarian in the Kingdom of Hungary and its controlled territories. Hundreds of languages were thus relegated out of the public sphere, and opportunities for educational or career advancement were limited to those who could speak German or Hungarian fluently. The German-speaking Bohemians in what was called Sudetenland, which is now part of the Czech Republic, were also increasingly less interested in being part of the multi-ethnic Austrian Empire when the German Empire, led by the House of Hohenzollern, was right there. There were several revolts in both Austria and Hungary, and the tipping point, as we all know, was the day that the Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary, an act which led to World War I and the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian, German, Russian, and Ottoman empires. The Ottoman Empire, which by the late 19th century was known as the Sick Man of Europe, was founded by the Seljuk Turks after the sack of Constantinople in 1453 and ruled over lands in Eastern and Southern Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. Greeks, Bulgarians, Romanians, Persians, Egyptians, Syrians, Turks, Armenians, Cypriots, Maltese, Algerians, Hejazis, Georgians, Moldavians, Ukrainians, Crimean Tartars, and even some parts of present-day Somalia, Eritrea, and Djibouti were, at one time or another, under the control of the Ottomans. Similar to the British Empire, the Ottomans sometimes exercised a lower level of control over their vassal states, which is called indirect colonialism. Unlike the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was not necessary to speak Turkish or be Muslim in order to advance in the Ottoman Empire because of the precedent set by Suleiman the Great, which was that as long as the appropriate taxes were paid, people in their conquered lands could by and large continue to exist as they had pre-Ottoman acquisition. The Ottoman Empire's base was the former Constantinople, now called Istanbul, and it was a cosmopolitan city then as now, a melting pot of Ionian Greek, Western European, and Middle Eastern influences. In the 15th and 16th centuries, the Ottomans were on an expansion streak that rivaled Rome post-Punic Wars, and they managed to score several key victories, such as the Battle of Chalderon that secured Ottoman access to the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, the Battle of Mohawks, which secured eastern Hungary, Romania, and the western half of the Black Sea, and a successful siege of the garrison of Castelnuovo, which made the Venetians agree to terms that granted the Ottomans control of the Aegean. It was due to this rapid and continuous expansion that the Ottoman Empire was able to stay on a technological and bureaucratic footing with Europe. But most historians agree that during the long centuries of relative peace in the 17th and 18th centuries, there was a technological and social stagnation in the greater empire during which time their various vassal states were exposed to the new nationalist developments in Europe and the Americas and began to have their own dreams of independence and sovereignty based on shared culture, language, and religion. The Ottoman response to this was tantamount, a 19th century push towards centralization and modernization within the empire that received heavy pushback from various groups like the Armenians, Greeks, and Assyrians. 
They, along with the Bulgarians and Serbs, had several revolts which the Ottoman Empire brutally crushed in ethnic genocides. But the damage was done and national fervor, along with heavy debts, led to the decline and eventual dissolution of the Ottoman Empire in 1919 with the outbreak of the Turkish War of Independence and the loss of its Middle Eastern territories post-World War I to Great Britain and France. The Russian Empire also met its demise at the end of World War I, but not because the Tsar chose the wrong side. The Russian Empire fought with the Allied forces of Great Britain and France in the First World War, but when the Russian Revolution broke out in October 1917, the Bolsheviks withdrew from the World War and fought a civil war that lasted throughout most of the 1920s. The Russian Empire, like the Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian empires, was multi-ethnic and multinational. But unlike the other two, they made very few attempts to fashion themselves into a cosmopolitan multicultural empire. The Poles, Finns, Lithuanians, Estonians, Latvians, Tartars, Jews, Armenians, Kazakhs, Roma, and Tajiks, etc. did not enjoy any levels of sovereignty under the autocratic Russian Orthodox Tsarist regime. And the Tsars were either completely opposed to modernizing the imperial monarchy or were slow and wishy-washy with the implementation. Pogroms, particularly against the Jews at Roma, were common and usually backed by the Tsar. And so the Marxists were able to channel the resentment of many ethnic minorities in the Russian Empire as they extolled the virtues of a classless state under communism, where one's ethnic background did not marginalize them. Nonetheless, Bolshevism was an explicitly Russian nationalist form of socialism, a nationalism that bound the USSR together even as it acknowledged the sovereignty of the many republics that joined it. Joseph Stalin, a Georgian who grew up in the Russian Empire, began his political career in the USSR as the People's Commissar for Nationalities and in November 1917 signed the Declaration for Nationalities. This afforded ethnic minorities the right to self-determination within the USSR. Under this plan, several republics were formed, such as Georgia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, and Finland. Although the Finns were able to negotiate with Stalin, and yes, it was actually possible to negotiate with Stalin, giving up the area of Karelia in exchange for complete independence. I personally see this as Stalin and Lenin playing by a Napoleon's playbook, and it's very interesting to me how influential that diminutive little Corcusan, Corcusan, Corsican? Yeah. How influential he continues to be centuries after his demise. The USSR functioned like the continental system under Napoleon, where sister republics were nominally independent but still heavily influenced by and dependent upon France, or in this case, Russia, uh, for military assistance and for economic trade. Even with this embrace of national sovereignty, the USSR was plagued by the same issues as Austro-Hungaria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire, because these non-Russian Soviet republics, having tasted the freedom of nationalist sovereignty, were not content to still be subject to what they perceived as their Russian overlords. The core of the USSR was Moscow, and thus, the Russian language was prioritized and ethnic Russians tended to hold the majority of leadership positions within the Politburo. 
Joseph Tito Broz, the Croat Slovene Yugoslav statesman, was so against the Russification of Yugoslavia that he broke the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia away from the USSR in 1949, or was expelled by the Common Forum, which is how everyone who is not a Croat or Slovene nationalist tends to see it. Nationalism and socialism continued to bump heads ideologically throughout the 20th century, with other Soviet republics such as Czechoslovakia eventually following Yugoslavia's example, and others like Ukraine and Poland following suit in the 1980s and 1990s, ultimately leading to the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. Yet another multinational, multi-ethnic state felled by nationalism, even as socialism attempted to transcend those designations and the boundaries they imposed. Now, by now I know you're probably wondering, damn girl, I'm pretty sure this episode is supposed to be about fascism, but that's the thing. Fascism is really just an extreme form of nationalism. Fascism's roots begin in the demise of the traditional multi-ethnic empire in favor of the nation state, which is bound by shared identity and the flattening of cultures, ethnicities, and languages in 20th century empires that did remain, namely the French and British empires that span the globe. A fascist state has no distinct look. The National Socialists of Germany, aka the Nazis, and the Italian fascist regime were more different than alike in their administration. But all fascist regimes tend to follow a three-pronged approach. A rebirth myth, a populist ultra-nationalist approach in gathering followers, and a myth of decadence. The playbook goes something like this. Once upon a time, people like you built this country and made it great. But we lost our way when we allowed outsiders to come in and take advantage of us and change our ethics. If you follow me, we'll take us back to greatness to a time when everyone in the country was the same. There's usually an insistence that some demographic, usually part of the majority rather than a true minority, has been forgotten while some exotic outsider is scapegoated for, you know, living the high life on the backs of this minority. I mean, this forgotten majority, also called the silent majority. The country then can only return to greatness once the outsiders have been expelled and the entire nation is once more wholly focused on making the country great. World War I is generally seen as the dawn of the modern era, where the advent of total war meant the development of wartime economies. Production was shifted from the making of consumer goods to the making of war materials, And the prospect of a draft meant that citizens needed to be indoctrinated early on as to their civic duty to support any war effort. Unlike pre-modern wars, where ordinary people's lives generally did not change as borders or dynasties changed, in the nation-state, a threat to the state is the same as a threat to the individual since the state represents everything that makes the individual who they are. With the nation-state being as pervasive as it is, Stateless people are generally seen as non-existent, so all wars become an existential crisis. With the existential myth of complete obliteration being hyped up at pretty much all times, populist leaders can then make the case that only a rigid adherence to orthodoxy and hierarchy can save the state and thus the people. Hitler called it the Volksville, or will of the people, but in contrast to the Marxists, who were his first enemies, 
The will of the people was not expressed through the people's active participation in government and the collectivization of decision-making. It was expressed through their loyalty to and identification with the state. In the fascist version of things, the state is like when all the Power Rangers link up and form a Megazord that represents all the interests of the people in one huge violent mass. So how does neoliberalism lend itself towards fascism? Through the state, of course. In episode 4.3, I mentioned how neoliberalism differs from classical liberalism in that it is a proponent of a strong state that reinforces market principles in every aspect of society. Fascist economics like autarky in Spain and Italy in principle advocate for closed economic systems rooted in self-sufficiency. But in reality, self-sufficiency and fascism don't mix because a fascist state needs the people to look towards the state for everything. Like I said before, self-sufficient people won't seek to identify with many things larger than themselves and are less likely to suffer an identity crisis in the event of regime change. So non-elites under fascism are encouraged to see the work they do as beneficial to the state, which is essentially beneficial to them, and the elites profit from this, both nationally and internationally, since they don't have like pesky labor unions and things like that to deal with. Neoliberals are willing and able to use the state to reinforce market principles versus collectivist principles. And fascist leaders are always courting the neoliberal elites to exploit their docile and sycophantic workforce. They go together like peas and carrots, essentially. Next episode, I'll be heading over to the other side of the political spectrum and attempting to tackle the historical underpinnings of the great misunderstood behemoth that is socialism. Join me next time for more Musings on History.